This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. It's Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print, and your host, Stuart in L.A., here to talk to you, very excited about From Russia with Love, the fifth book in our ongoing 007 literary retrospective. Now, this is the first example where I've actually seen the movie before I've read the novel. We've been covering the movies over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Arnie, Brock, and myself all agreed that Connery's second movie, From Russia with Love, was one of the best, an early highlight. And I was overjoyed to finally be getting to it in book form. And Brock had mentioned in the movie podcast that this book was President John F. Kennedy's one of his ten favorite novels, so that made it even more enticing. I was looking forward to how well my love for the film was going to translate on the page, and I'm not disappointed. This is a very faithful adaptation. They worked very hard, painstakingly, to make sure that most of what's on the page wound up in the movie. So if you like the movie, you're going to love the book. Maybe the biggest difference is the fact that they have a different enemy. The movie's established right away that the bad guy Bond is facing is Spectre and Blofeld. And that organization and that character have not been introduced in the Bond novels as of yet. We're five novels in, and the enemy has remained Smirsh. It's Soviets, spies. And they're tired of Bond humiliating them. You know, they get a bunch of generals together, and they cook up a plot specifically to kill Bond. Here's this guy that forced us to kill Le Chiffre in Casino Royale, and that ended that whole financing we were getting from America and Harlem and Live and Let Die, and the Moonraker rocket didn't end up going off as we had planned in Moonraker, so now we are going to take care of this problem. More than the movie, this book really underlines that the goal is to kill Bond specifically for what he has done in the past. These Russian generals decide to seek advice from a chess player, Kronstein. There is this well-renowned strategist they have in pocket. They go to him, they say, what should we do? And Kronstein is the one that comes up with a two-part solution. Yes, they need to assassinate Bond, but it's not enough just to kill him. They need to assassinate his character, his reputation. They need to embarrass Her Majesty for all the embarrassments that Bond has inflicted on them. So they need both an assassin and a seductress. For the killing part of it, they got a really good choice. Donovan Grant. He is the son of a professional weightlifter who had a one-night stand with an Irish woman. This kid has grown up psychologically scarred. He's big. He's physically imposing. He kills by moonlight. He's impelled by the moon. He's a serial killer, essentially. And for much of his young life, he had to go on the run and hide his compulsions. But once he came to the agency of Smirsh, he's anointed as Red Grant and is celebrated as their primary assassin. And we really get an early description that sticks with us with a woman that comes to give Grant a massage after he's had a grueling workout. And she talks about the fact that even though he's this physically perfect specimen, there's something grotesque about the perfect quality of his body, that it's his eyes. It feels inhuman that he has gone beyond feeling like a human being, a Superman. So Superman is going to go kill Bond. Sounds like that'll work. Now all they need is a woman to 
provide the bait. And that's where Rosa Club comes in. Now, this is a very fun character from the movie. I think if you ever saw From Russia with Love, Connery, uh, you'll remember Rosa. She, you know, the short, squat, late 40s troll of a woman, just a beast. Even though she's not diminutive, she just has this larger-than-life persona. She's been in the game almost as long as Bond. He's been with the service since 1938. She started, I think, in 34. They're almost contemporaries. Bond represents the West. He's the man. She's the East. She's the Soviet power. She's the woman. It almost feels personal here. And she is going to personally find what will appeal to his taste in Tatiana Romanova, who is, she's described as this 20-something, very beautiful, very dedicated, but naive Soviet spy who looks like Greta Garbo, has some ballet experience, perfect for Bond. Kleb is going to engineer it so that Tatiana thinks for love of country that she's going to run off with Bond to Canada. This young girl does not know that this is an assassination hit. She just thinks that she is helping her country by going away and at some point she will get passage home. In the movie it's implied, here on the book, it's very explicit that Kleb taste the goods here, that she's not going to send Tatiana out to have sex with Bond without doing it first herself, and she has to be convinced personally that Tatiana's got what it takes. Probably a very provocative thing to put in a book in 1957. But I'd say that Cleb really is our real villain. She's the boss of both Tatiana and Red Grant, that she's using them as the two-way solution for humiliating and destroying Bond. So Tatiana is sent to sort of neutral territory, Istanbul, Turkey. This is a gateway, really, between East and West. And there are a lot of spies floating around here on both sides. It's free territory. Unlike Berlin, it's not a divided city, per se. But it is unofficially very split between Soviet and Western interests. Tatiana reaches out to an English contact in Istanbul just to let them know that she's ready to defect and that she wants to be rescued by James Bond. She calls it out. I want James Bond. I love him. Now, this is the part of the story I really like, that they've engineered it, that she has been working in their secret service and has read all the case files and sees him because he is such this big threat to Soviet interests to be the face of Western power. And that she's seen this picture. She thinks he's cute. She wants to marry James Bond. In today's internet romance world, it's not so crazy to think about two people that have never met being engaged, but in 1957, this would have seemed like the most girlish of fantasies, and probably not enough of bait for M to take. M is the boss of Bond, and he gets to say what Bond does. M is really enticed more because this girl is promising something else. She works in cryptography. She's also going to bring them the Spectre device. It's an encryption machine. It's what the Soviets use to send coded messages to each other all throughout the continent. So if England gets the Spectre device, then the whole Cold War dynamics have changed. They got the upper hand. So M is seduced by the Spectre device, and Bond is definitely seduced by the pretty young thing that has a crush on him. Now, we don't meet Bond for nearly a 100 pages in the story. It's a real lengthy build-up as they explain how the plot comes together. But when we finally see him, we see how vulnerable he is to the wiles of a woman. He's just been dumped by Tiffany Case, who, if you remember Diamonds Are Forever, was someone that they were setting up as his new partner. 
that he had managed to get past her defenses and they had slept together and it seemed like it was headed for the aisle. You know, it's stated by M. Weren't you going to marry her? Well, I have to laugh. In the movies, James Bond is always with women, and we never think that he's going to have her in the next film. We know that it's a one-night stand. We understand what the rules are. But here, the books, they have to make us believe that Bond falls in love with every woman. There's a new woman each time, but each time, Bond really thinks he's going to marry her and put on that ring. And I guess that they were really considering marriage, but too many fights had her turning to a Marine and going back to America with him. Bond's brokenhearted. Bond wants to believe that there's some woman out there that loves him. He's ready to be duped. I think this is different from the movie characterization of Bond, that Connery really entered into this plot knowing it was a trap, but thinking that he was smarter. He knew how to handle manipulative women and that he was not going to get forced into doing something that he didn't want to do as he romanced this Tatiana. But in the book, I really do believe that this James Bond doesn't totally suspect that this is all a ruse. Novel Bond is just more naive, and there are omens around him saying this is a bad idea. I mean, they put one very explicitly at the start of this. Bond has a secretary, and she tells him, don't travel on the 13th. While he is booked on flight 130 on the 13th, she thinks that's an unlucky number. He ignores it. The plane experiences turbulence, almost goes down in a lightning storm. This is how he starts off as he heads into Istanbul, Turkey, to meet Tatiana. But before he can meet her, he needs to meet Darko Karim, what I would argue is the best invention of the entire novel, the man that works in Istanbul for the British. Larger-than-life character. I absolutely love Karim. He works in the movie. He's better here. Fleming describes him as an exuberant pirate and gives him this elaborate backstory about how he came into the spy game, that he originally started working in the circus, fell in love with a woman and abducted her and handcuffed her to a table, and then she fell in love with him for real, and this wild, crazy story. He's full of all kinds of provocative anecdotes and is treating Bond right. You know, Bond is trying to live modestly. He's not paid very well, as we know from Moonraker. We saw his salaries, and he's in a modest hotel. Well, of course, Karim's like, you're going to meet this girl? No, I'm going to put you in this nice hotel in the honeymoon suite. We love Karim. He's more Bond than Bond. He's so good at breaking Bond out of his shell. This is what he needs. Even more than Felix Leiter, I feel like this is a character that it really paired well with our nebbish, sometimes too mild-mannered main character. And they have a little adventure of their own here. It kind of goes off in a territory I would reject if I weren't having so much fun with Krim. But Krim's had an assassination attempt on himself. And so he and Bond kind of investigate by going out to his gypsy contacts and asking questions. And there's a gun battle and Russian agents. So all of this stuff. It's in the movie. I don't know that it has much to do with pushing the plot forward. At least the one that we've been explained with Tatiana. It really is just a great way of making us see the partnership between Karim and Bond. And there is a funny little detail I want to point out. In the end of this little subplot, they cornered a assassin, a Bulgarian named Krelinku, who's hiding behind a movie poster. In the movie From Russia with Love, it's a depiction of Anita Ekbert. In the book, 
it's a big billboard of Marilyn Monroe. And I had to laugh because, uh, well, of course JFK is going to love the idea of his mistress being a big plot point in this sexcapade spy adventure. It, it made me laugh at what I knew about the history of Marilyn Monroe and JFK. And I imagine they might have even used Marilyn in the movie, but by the time they were filming, Marilyn had already died. So they probably considered that in poor taste and went with another blonde movie star that was a little less notorious. So Karim essentially is playing the role here of CIA agent Felix Leiter that he has in previous adventures, and that means we don't have to deal with too much of Bond's disdain with American culture. You know, I always observe when that kind of pops up. It does pop up here. Tatiana makes a very bad mistake upon first meeting Bond. She tries to compliment him by telling him, you were like an American film star. And Bond is, that's the worst thing you could say to me. You know, it almost ruins the moment. But this chick is hot and... He's totally smitten, and it isn't long before they're in the sack together. You know, it's kind of nice to see literary Bond get laid. He doesn't have such successful romance on the page too often. If you look at the women that he's been with so far in novels, it's, well, one ended up dead. One, I'm not sure, ever stopped being solo. Uh, Another was engaged to somebody else, and Tiffany Case just left with an American. So it's nice to see Fleming get a little saucy here. You know, this is more than heavy petting. There was a little bit of this in Moonraker when he went off with Brant, and they kind of had some necking. But yes, he gets his first sex scene in here, and it feels right. It feels nice to see Bond closer to his in the movies. And it gets her to pass the test. Bond and Karim have been talking. Do you believe this girl? Do you believe her? I don't know. I'm not sure. And Karim says the only way to tell if she's lying for sure is by sleeping with her. Well, Bond sleeps with her, and he still believes her. So, Krim's not sure, but he doesn't go there. So, Bond is ready to pull the plot in motion. And so, they create false identities and are booked on the Oriental Express. They'll be leaving Turkey, and for five days, will be traveling to Paris as a married couple. And so far, so good. Tatiana shows up with her quote-unquote dowry, the Spectre device. She's brought the machine she's promised. She's shown up on time. They get on the train, and things seem to be going well as they pull out of the station. Until Karim comes to Bond later and says, You do know that three people that work with Tatiana in her office are also on this train. Bond goes back to Tatiana, asks who they are, why they're there. She didn't know that they would be traveling on train. She knew they were going to Germany and suspects that they'll be getting off in Berlin as they pass through. Krim's not going to wait for that. Instead, he pulls some pranks and gets two of them thrown off by the conductor. And unfortunately, he's taken out by the third one. The last guy comes at him in his sleep and slits his throat. But Krim at least gets the final laugh. He pulls a knife as he's dying and kills him. So Krim is dead, but so are the three men that are tailing Tatiana. So it appears that Bond and his girl are going to make it all the way to Paris without any more obstruction. Until, that is... Kleb sends in Grant. Donovan Grant is now going to come in the guise of being the replacement for Karim. Bond calls M, and M promises backup, and here comes this Englishman who's always saying old boy and appears to know what they're talking about, and Bond doesn't exactly like him, but he does trust him to be who he says he is. And it's quite a surprise later when Bond finds Tatiana drugged and he's at gunpoint. And Grant explains how this is all a ruse to make him look like he's failed at a mission, that he's going to be set up to have killed Tatiana and then 
killed himself and leaving a suicide note that's sort of just going to be an embarrassment for the British Secret Service. They're going to swoop in, try and cover it up. They'll take the Spectre device. They don't know that there's a bomb inside, and when their top cryptographers try to crack the code, what they really will do is die in a big explosion. So this is Smirsh's big plan coming to a head. There's only a few more minutes before the train passes into a tunnel, and Grant can feel comfortable that his gunfire will be muzzled and he can take out Bond, but that's his plan. Make Bond look like a lovesick agent gone rogue who killed a woman and, yeah, blow up some British code crackers and sounds like they might have done well, but I also want to point out here, the Bond that is on the page is not Connery. We see Connery and Robert Shaw go at it in the movie. We think, ah, that's a fair fight. But this is David Niven. This is the little guy. This is not someone that I feel can take on this uber-muscular, blonde Superman. I just don't see how it's going to play out the same way. So Bond plays possum instead. He gets a book, puts it under his shirt. He knows the guy's going to shoot him in his heart and the book stops the bullet. He falls over, pretends to be dead. He'll use some of the devices that the Q branch gave him to take out Red Grant. It plays out kind of the same as in the movie, but an important distinction that they don't play it for a physical fight. It's much more of a head game. And now Bond knows where Red Grant was headed when they got to Paris. He knows where Club is. And in the movie, it's played like, well... He and Tatiana are on holiday, and Club comes at them pretending to be a maid, but it's different. Bond's on the attack. Here, he goes to her quarters in France and confronts her, and she ends up drawing sewing needles tipped with poison, and then they get into a big fight. Well, this Bond's big enough to take care of a short woman with sewing needles. He gets a chair and pushes her against the wall, and it looks like... Things are wrapping up more or less as they do in the movie until the last page and my jaw hits the ground because Kleb cracks open her famous boots with the steel point poison tipped edge to them. You know, we see it in the movie. I didn't think they were coming into the book. They're here in the very last page. She gets a good kick in and Bond dies. He's administered a poison into his leg at the very least, clutches his heart, turns purple, and falls over, and the novel stops. Fleming has left us with a cliffhanger, and I totally was not expecting this. Was he actually thinking of killing Bond? Well, it's up for debate, because it's 1957, Fleming has published five novels and five years of James Bond. It's been said that he's wanting to do other things, and maybe this was a way to end the character definitively. There's some evidence to believe that this could have been the last James Bond novel. Well, what a way to go out. This is a really good one. If it was, I'd say it was the best, because it took the great ideas in the Cold War politics of Casino Royale and really amped them. This is a richer novel, more leisurely paced, it's denser, and the prose has just gotten better. I think Fleming has become a better writer, and all of the elements that he brings in, particularly Karim, really are solid. They really have perfected the formula. If Bond's dead, then he went out on top. But, of course, we know he's not. And I will be back next week with the sixth novel, Dr. No. I would worry about this if I didn't know there were several more months of Bond adventures still to come in print. I think we can rest assured that somehow, someway, I'm curious to see how Bond's going to get out of this one. And while we wait for that answer, why don't you join us over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, where we're still looking at the movies and transitioning into the Roger Moore era. We're going to be getting into Live and Let Die, as it was in the movies, with a new guy in the lead role. We'll see how Moore does with the part. And it'll give us some time until you're able to join me again next week for 
Dr. No. Thanks for joining me. Keep reading. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.